Well, congratulations, everybody, on either having the, uh, uh, the fortitude to get up after a night's reveling uh, or the good judgment not to overindulge last night. Uh, the first thing I want to say before I get into my topic is I want to make a declaration that no animals were harmed in the photoshopping of this picture. <laughs> uh, how to eat an elephant, a bottom-up approach to climate policy. Of course, you all know the answer to the question, how do you eat an elephant, right? One piece at a time. Uh, and that's really the gist of it. You can go away now, actually. You've heard the lecture. Um, basically, it's that we have really misconstructed climate policy and made it into far too big an object for us to get our arms around and deal with it. And in a nutshell, what I'm going to argue is we need to deconstruct it into some manageable bite-sized pieces uh, that we actually can get a handle on. Um, I'm going to start out with a riddle, why climate change is like a Christmas tree. And I'm going to tell you a little story uh, about when I was a junior researcher at the Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee back in the mid-1980s when I first started getting interested in climate change. And at that time, I made a proposal to the lab director that we should have a small project uh, or program on the topic of the human and policy aspects of climate change, people just getting interested in the science, just developing the climate models, and so on and so forth. And he, being a wise lab director, referred this to a committee of greybeards, and they did literally have greybeards, um, to see whether they thought it was a good idea. And I was approached by one of this committee in the corridor of the lab, uh, who said to me very gravely, Steve, I hear you're interested in climate change. I said, well, yes, Milk. He said, you're wasting your time, son. He said, it's never going to be a major public policy issue. <laughs> and I said, that's interesting, Milk. Why is that? He said, three reasons. It's too far in the future. The science is too uncertain. And finally, there's no simple, easy villain to blame. And I thought for a moment, I said, you know, Milk, you're absolutely right. Those are the three main reasons why climate change is going to become a major public policy issue. Because it's like a Christmas tree. People will be able to bring a whole variety of agendas, like bringing their own Christmas ornaments, and hang it on to climate change. And indeed, that's what's happened. Over the years, climate change has gone from being a fairly straightforward uh, atmosphere and environment issue to being a development issue, an equity issue, an economic issue, um, a technology issue. Uh, you name it, you can see how Basically, people have come along and they've used the idea that somehow or other there's this big carbon stick that we can beat people into changing their behavior uh, as a way of getting their issue dealt with under the climate change umbrella. And eventually what happened was the bandwagon collapsed, the wheels fell off, the oxen fell over and died uh, at Copenhagen, essentially, uh, where it became quite clear that the framework convention and the Kyoto architecture had basically fallen apart. And I'm going to start out by explaining um, why it was that the Kyoto architecture fell apart. It wasn't simply that the Americans were bad people uh, and didn't get on board. By the way, I should, in the interest of full disclosure, say I am a dual national. I'm both a US and a UK citizen. Um, but it wasn't just that the US didn't get, on, uh, didn't get on board, or later China came along and messed things up. It's that the architecture was fundamentally flawed from the start. Indeed, it was a case of the wrong trousers. And I take it I don't have to explain the story of the wrong trousers to this audience, although I often do when I have to go to the US. Uh, basically, the inventor, Wallace, has these mechanical trousers to make his dog walking easier, and the evil penguin Feathers McGraw substitutes another pair of trousers, which takes Wallace off uh, to force him to do things that he wouldn't otherwise want to do. And I'm going to argue that actually Kyoto has some of those characteristics. Why was the architecture flawed from the beginning? It was based on three very suggestive and seductive analogies with other things that we had been managing around the time it came into being, uh, but which I would argue were, in fact, in the final analysis, misguided analogies. So this was, these, this was uh, an unintended consequence of following some models which already existed. The first and most obvious of these is, of course, the stratospheric ozone issue. This is the CFC's problem, the Antarctic ozone hole. Uh, that's this thing over here, um, where it was discovered that chlorofluorocarbons, which we've been using extensively for decades in, as refrigerants, as foam-blowing agents for insulation and furniture, uh, as fire-extinguishing agents and so on, were actually being released into the atmosphere. And in the stratosphere, they were causing the depletion 
of ozone, which in the stratosphere is a good thing. It's not a good thing in the troposphere, in the lower atmosphere, but in the upper atmosphere, it's a good thing because it filters out ultraviolet light, which is damaging to life. And, uh, of course, uh, what happened then was the Vienna Convention on to control substances uh, that were damaging the ozone layer, followed up by the more famous Montreal Protocol that I'm sure you've all heard of, uh, which uh, basically limited the production of chlorofluorocarbons and eventually, with the London Amendments, phased out the production of chlorofluorocarbons altogether. Now, you can see how this is suggestive for dealing with carbon dioxide, right? It's about gases being released into the atmosphere from supposedly industrial activity, from human activity. Uh, and uh, you had an architecture here which had actually been very successful in coming to grips with the problem. Only the, the analogy was highly imperfect. Because with CFCs, you were dealing with a small suite artificially produced gases, manufactured gases, produced by a small number of manufacturers, small number of companies, in a small number of countries, and most importantly, for which there was a readily available technological substitute that could be put into place in those air conditioners to blow foam uh, and in fire extinguishers uh, without having to have a radical technological upheaval. So the analogy uh, was flawed. By the way, one of the things we might have learned from the uh, chlorofluorocarbons example, but didn't, was that the Montreal Protocol controlled production of the gas, not emissions of the gas. There's nothing in the ozone uh, treaty that prevents you releasing chlorofluorocarbons uh, from old refrigerating equipment and so on. Now, people have had the good sense not to, do, to try to control that, but that's not part of the architecture. It was phasing out production. Yes. You're having difficulty hearing me. Okay, I'm sorry. That's most unusual. Um, I apologize for that. The second analogy um, was that of uh, the sulfate aerosol program of the US uh, Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, basically, the problem here was uh, in the uh, 1980s that the US became very concerned about acid rain caused by sulfate emissions from electric power plants. And after a long scientific inquiry called the National Acidic Precipitation Assessment Program, which actually got nowhere, it produced a surfeit of science from which the politicians then cherry-picked according to what their pre-existing uh, political preferences were. Does this sound familiar, by the way, um, climate science? Uh, so after this long, inconclusive scientific program, basically what the Congress decided to do was to cut through the Gordian knot uh, of the problem and introduce sulfur trading. Now, the purpose of sulfur trading was basically to allow uh, power plants that were burning high sulfur coal, dirty high sulfur coal, to continue to do that um, by buying emissions permits from uh, plants that were burning much cleaner coal from the Western states. And this was a way, essentially, of allowing powerful states, senators like uh, the Senator for West Virginia, to defend the economy of his state, which was, of course, a dirty coal producer. Uh, this actually worked very well. Uh, and uh, so people felt that this would be a nice model for climate change. If we, it would be economically efficient, indeed, if we were to have carbon dioxide emissions pro permits that people could trade. And that way, you find the most efficient places to reduce carbon dioxide uh, would emerge, and they would sell off their surplus permits to the people uh, who were less efficiently able to, or less readily able to, to make the reductions. All sounds very sensible, except again the analogy is highly imperfect. Because what we're talking about is a single gas, sulfur dioxide. We're talking about a small number of traders, US electric utility companies. And we're talking about trading taking place within a single legal regime that can enforce contracts. None of these conditions, of course, applies to climate change. Uh, it would be hard to imagine in a situation where you have international emissions tradings, uh, where a country says, oh, okay, sorry, we've exceeded our cap, uh, we've used up our quota, but our economic development still requires us to emit more, and we're not going to buy permits because we're a developing country or we're, we're not one of the, uh, the major emitters or so forth. It's very hard to imagine what kinds of sanctions, realistically, uh, we would impose on a country that broke the regime in that way. So that wasn't very, uh, a very perfect analogy either. The third, and this is one that surprises a lot of people, is actually the uh, strategic arms... Um, strategic Arms Reduction uh, Treaty. And people are kind of puzzled by this. What's the analogy between reducing nuclear warheads and 
uh, climate change policy? Well, it introduced the idea of mutually verifiable reductions. At the core of the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty was the idea that the US and uh, the Soviet Union would reduce the number of warheads, nuclear warheads they had, and they would actually be able to verify that the other country had kept its part of the deal. Uh, and for, people who are, for anybody who is sceptical of the fact that this directly informed the climate talks, I'd remind you that before Al Gore was known as a, an environment wonk, uh, he was actually better known as a national security wonk. That was the main focus of a lot of his activity in the 1980s. And it was, in fact, his chief of staff, Leon Firth, who took this idea from the uh, Strategic Arms Re Reduction uh, Treaty negotiations directly uh, into the climate architecture. So I've explained why I think the, the Kyoto architecture was shaped the way it was uh, and the reasons why it was actually doomed from the beginning and was not just simply frustrated uh, by the misbehavior of a few states. And I'm going to argue that the, uh, the right trousers, in a sense, have uh, three legs and that they're technological legs. The first of these is energy modernization. The second is technology to cope with climate variability, adaptation technology, not just to climate change but to variability. And then a new emerging area, which we have to take seriously, uh, but is fraught with all sorts of potential problems, uh, which is the idea of climate remediation or geoengineering. Just to uh, reassure you that this is not a critique that has uh, come late in the day, uh, this is just, uh, these are just a few publications uh, that outline the kind of a strategic approach that I'm going to describe to you. Uh, you can find Climate Pragmatism and the Hartwell paper on the web if you Google for them. Uh, if you want a copy of Human Choice and Climate Change, it's four volumes. Uh, I'd be very happy to send you one if you send me an email. Um, the challenge is staggering. This is the IPCC's projections of the uh, impacts of carbon concentrations in the atmosphere on atmospheric temperatures over the course of the next century. Uh, and unfortunately, the bad news there's worse news later, but the bad news is we're on the top of this curve. Global emissions are increasing about 3% per annum, which puts us uh, on a track uh, for possibly something like, looking like a two degree temperature rise, uh, global average temperature rise at the surface of the Earth by the mid-century, uh, and something much more dramatic, somewhere between one and six degrees, well, sorry, uh, something close to six degrees by the end of the century. Uh, so that's the bad news. The even worse news is that those projections are over-optimistic. When the IPCC was making those projections, they were assuming two trends which had been running for about 100 years would continue unabated, and indeed not just unabated, but at un historically unprecedented levels. And that was a trend towards decarbonization um, uh, and uh, decline in energy intensity. Declines in energy intensity means you're using less energy per unit of global GDP that you produce. Declining carbon intensity means that you're emitting less carbon per unit of GDP uh, globally produced. And that was the case, as I say, for about 100 years, three or four years ago, that inflected, that changed. And both of those are now rising uh, as a result largely of China and India's industrialization. Um, and uh, that means that the amount of emissions that we need to avoid over the next 100 years isn't simply uh, the, uh, the, the red amount, which is what the IPCC is projecting, uh, but also includes the dark blue and the light blue amounts uh, that you see on this graph. So you can see that the challenge actually that we may be facing may be much greater uh, than actually is conventionally recognized. And the way we have been dealing with these so far under the Kyoto arrangements is to set uh, carbon emissions targets, all of which we have failed to meet, uh, except for a couple which have been the direct result of, of economic decline. Uh, and each time we fail to meet the targets, it seems that the conventional policy approach, uh, people like Connie um, uh, Hedegaard and Madame Figueres, is to call for more stringent, more difficult targets. Uh, this actually is quite a common approach uh, in human society when something's not working is to call for more of what's not working rather than to step back and say, actually, are we doing the right thing? Uh, and in fact, if we were to try to meet the UK's legal commitments under the Climate Change Act, to get on track to meet those, we would have to build the equivalent of 15 of these nuclear power stations in the next three years. Build them and get them operating. That's the scale of the, of the problem that we're facing. That ain't going to happen. 
Now, I'm going to argue that emissions mitigation is an energy technology problem. There's a complicated equation on the top there by a Japanese economist by the name of Kaya, uh, which uh, is the formal expression of the relationship between uh, uh, carbon emissions and uh, energy uh, and technology. Um, I'm just a humble anthropologist, uh, and that's a little bit too complicated for me, so I've reduced it to this much simpler formulation at the bottom here. Emissions is a function of population, wealth, and technology. So those are the three levers you can pull. Now, we know that making people poorer, crashing the economy, actually makes carbon emissions decline. But I put it to you, that's not really uh, likely to be a very popular policy uh, for any government to propose, uh, particularly at the present moment. Uh, we also uh, know that um, uh, the, the, if we multiply the, uh, the amount of emissions that people per capita make by the population, we have a larger population, uh, indeed, uh, that uh, also affects emissions. But actually, if we want to affect emissions by the middle of this century or by the end of this century, we can't rely on population control. People often say, oh, population's the elephant in the room, to extend the metaphor too far. Um, but it's not. Because if you want to use population to control carbon emissions this century, you have to kill people. You actually have to kill people. And the worst news is the people you have to kill are us. Okay, it's Europeans, Australians, and Americans. It's not poor people in faraway places or anything of that sort. So again, in a democracy, not likely to be a very popular policy angle. So if you can't actually reduce population, and you can't reduce wealth, and you probably shouldn't be trying to do either of those under the circumstances I've described, really you're left with technology as the third lever. And let me just emphasize that when I talk about technology, there's often a dichotomy that people draw between technology and behavior. You know, there's no technological fix. We have to change our behavior. You can't change one without changing the other. If you want people to use more public transit, you have to provide the public transit technology for people to use, for example. If you want people to install um, uh, more efficient uh, devices in their homes, more, buy more efficient appliances, and so on and so forth, you have to have the technological know-how available to install those and service them and so on and so forth. And any of you who've tried to get a builder to uh, do any building extension on your, uh, your homes recently will know that if you try to get the builder to, to put in place the latest bit of kit that you've, uh, re that you've read about, the builder says, oh, no, oh, no, I can't do that. You know, we don't do that. Uh, you know, and, and so they want to stick with what they know. So the, the, the kit and the behavior are intimately intertwined with each other. You can't change one. Uh, without changing the other. <coughs> and I want to also emphasize that when I talk about energy modernization, I'm not talking about an incremental move up the S-curve here uh, on the left. We're talking about shifting the, fundamentally the technology system from the left to the right so that we're on a uh, completely new trajectory. What are the current obstacles to energy modernization? Actually, they're twofold. Uh, they are largely that the, uh, the bits of kit we have Things like wind turbines and solar cells are still too expensive. So clearly one of the things we need to do is to bring down the unit costs of those technologies. The other big problem we have is integrated grid storage, particularly in an era where we have more than half the population living in big cities. We're not all going to have a windmill and a solar panel on our roof to provide for our needs. We will still need central station electrical generation, and we need to store the energy when the wind isn't blowing, when the sun isn't shining so that we have that available for people uh, uh, to use. And at the moment, what we do is we pump, uh, we pump water uphill uh, into a reservoir in the daytime when we're using those renewables, and then we let it out at night uh, to drive a uh, hydro turbine, which is not an effective way to do things. Um, the other thing that I want to say about energy modernization is that there's an imperative to do it for its own sake. Uh, because we are actually faced with a situation where we have 1.6 billion people on planet Earth who do not have access to safe uh, electrical uh, energy. Uh, and I put it to you that that's actually really uh, an appalling situation for us to be in at the beginning of the 21st century. If we want to provide those 1.6 billion people with access to safe electrical energy, we're going to have to increase the amount of renewable energy that we have available, or at least non-carbon emitting energy, renewable and nuclear perhaps, uh, from uh, currently something about, um, I think it's about three, one and a half terawatts up to something like 13, 14 terawatts of electricity, uh, electrical power. So this is a really strong imperative for uh, other reasons. 
What are the challenges to energy modernization? My apologies to anybody who came to my lecture at Keeble yesterday. Uh, the next few slides repeat in part at least uh, some of the things I said there. One of the challenges is lock-in. We, we get locked in to particular technological conf configurations. You all recognize this sequence of letters, right? It's the top line of the English keyboard. Does anybody here know why that's the top line of your typewriter, of your, um, your computer? It was, it, yes, at the, when the typewriter was first introduced, typists were too fast. And the keyboard uh, design was introduced to slow typists down. Now, when I started at my job at the Oak Ridge National Lab, which I mentioned earlier, in 1983, I had one of these things on my desk, an IBM golf ball typewriter. No keys, so you didn't need to have that keyboard configuration even then. A couple of years later, I had one of these, an old uh, Apple II uh, computer, not even any printing equipment uh, actually uh, there uh, at all, and still the same configuration of the keyboard, and indeed we still have it on our uh, latest uh, keyboards. And why do we do this? We do it because the technology is not just standing on its own, it's embedded in all sorts of other configurations and uh, systems, which include the existence of touch typing manuals, touch typing classes, secretarial schools, uh, so on and so forth. The fact that a lot of us are already used to that keyboard and we'd have to retrain our fingers into a different configuration. So that's one example of how we get locked into particular technologies. Uh, another issue is path dependency. Uh, and uh, uh, I wonder if people would find it credible if I told you that the reason why the shuttle boosters here uh, on the right-hand picture are the size they are was because of the, uh, the Roman war chariot. Um, I can quickly run through that for you. Uh, the, the, the shuttle boosters were built by Morton Fire Coal in the Midwest of the United States. They had to be moved to Florida to the shuttle launch site by train. Therefore, the limiting factor was the size of the train tunnels. Why were the train tunnels the size they were? Because of the gauge of the rails. Why was the gauge of the rails what it was? Uh, it was the four foot, whatever it is, and a half, uh, that's the standard English gauge. Uh, it was because American railways were built by English railway engineers. Uh, why did English railway engineers use that gauge? Because when they first built trains, uh, they used the, uh, the trucks that were used down coal mines on rails uh, to pull behind the first steam engines, uh, and they were already of that gauge. Why were those trucks, those mining trucks, uh, have the axle length they did? Well, they were made on the same jigs that carts were made on. And why do carts have that axle length? Well, it was a standard medieval cart axle length because the wheels of the carts had to fit in the ruts on the road, otherwise you would break the wheels uh, frequently and this would not be practicable. Uh, but why were those ruts the different distance they were apart? Well, because in fact uh, the, uh, the ruts came into being in Roman times with the Roman, on the Roman roads with the Roman war chariots uh, cutting those ruts. In fact, if you go to certain uh, places on the Via Appia Antica today in Rome, you can actually see these very deep ruts in the road uh, the, where the, the, uh, the carts cut those, those ruts. Uh, so basically it was the uh, axle width of the Roman war chariot that determined uh, everything I've said beforehand. Why was the axle of the war, Roman war chariot the, the, uh, the length it was? Uh, it was because it was pulled by two horses. So you can see, in fact, that uh, you can trace the history whereby the Morton Thiokol booster on the shuttle was the size it was because of the size of a Roman's horse's arse. Okay. Um, now, th th this may be a little, this may be a little fanciful or even apocryphal, um, but it does make the point that there are kinds of path dependencies in systems that we have to overcome that we're not often not even aware of. Now, a lot of people have been advocating uh, cap and trade carbon markets for dealing uh, with uh, uh, climate change, and the logic here is, of course, that as you raise the price of carbon. Uh, through cap and trade, you, you, you basically you make the, per the carbon permit scarcer and more expensive. This sends a signal to innovators uh, to bring down the cost of the non-carbon uh, emitting technologies, that cost that curve at the top. And at some point in the future, uh, the uh, new technologies are cheaper than the old technologies plus the cost of the carbon, uh, carbon cap, and then the new technologies take over. Um, now, I'm prepared to concede to my neoclassical economist friends that in principle, uh, given sufficient time, we could in fact devise an environmentally effective and economically efficient carbon market. 
what bothers me is basically carbon permits are a new currency and does anybody ha know how long it took us to develop the international currency market that we have today? No? It's about 300 years. Uh, let's say we can get an order of magnitude improvements on that and we can have an efficient, effective carbon market in 30 years. Oh, whoops, we're already at mid-century. We've missed the boat. Okay. So even if you accept the logic of carbon trading, I will put it to you that the, that the realities of the time that it takes to really build a market uh, talk against that. And that what we have to do really is to bring down the cost of the alternative technologies much quicker uh, than we could uh, practically do that. The other thing to bear in mind is, of course, uh, it's never been in the case in a democracy uh, that raising fuel costs uh, has been a successful uh, policy tool. If you think about it, we had a fuel escalator tax in Britain uh, 10 years ago. The government was for forced to abandon it. Uh, every time diesel goes up in France, the truck drivers uh, blockade the ports, uh, so on and so forth. So it, it's, uh, uh, it's not really a policy that that's likely to have much bite because in a democracy, politicians are not going to fix that tax, that, 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 the, the, um, the, car, the permit cost level, or, or indeed a carbon tax if they're using that as an alternative, uh, at a level that's going to actually bite hard on people because people will throw them out of office. So there's a political constraint there uh, on the uh, ideal, economics ideal. Now, what I and my colleagues argue for, actually, is a very, very low-level carbon tax. Um, and the idea is that the car you can have a carbon tax that's not as is the price in cap-and-trade or in a large carbon tax designed to change behavior, uh, but it's actually uh, designed to raise funds. And it's designed to raise funds to, to do the necessary research, development, demonstration, and deployment that you need to overcome those obstacles that I talked about earlier about the costs of uh, non-emitting technologies and overcoming the absence of an integrated grid storage uh, capability. Um, and you could, have this, uh, you could have this vanishingly small carbon tax. It would be set against the background taxation level of uh, particular countries, so it would be different from country to country. Uh, and it's interestingly enough uh, to notice that in Countries which have low tax regimes, such as the United States, tend to be countries with large populations. Countries with high tax regimes, such as Britain, tend to have smaller populations. Uh, so uh, you can see how it, uh, the size of the population, the level of the tax regime, still means that you can raise considerable fun sums of money. And we calculate that a $5 a ton carbon tax, which is really invisible, uh, could raise 80 to $150 billion a year. Uh, to put into the necessary research and demonstration that's that we think uh, there has to be. We would target this at, uh, not at uh, pie-in-the-sky technologies like how to make energy from orange juice or anything of that sort. Um, neither would we put it into things which are very close to market. Uh, the former are things which are better taken care of under basic research policies of national governments. Uh, the latter are things that uh, venture capitalists will take up anyway. So it's things that are really in the 3 to 12, 3 to 15 year range away from being applicable that we would need to concentrate on. And one of the things about this uh, program is that it actually has benefits for India and China. India and China, remember, have no incentive to participate in carbon trading. They will get no benefit from that. But China actually is the country which has been responsible for the major technological improvements in wind turbines and, and solar cells over the last decade. They have tremendous indigenous technical capacity. India doesn't have that specialization, but they have tremendous capability in IT and smart systems. And smart grids, smart metering, smart devices, IT control, computer control systems are going to be very important components of any new energy technology. So there are real incentives here for India and China to get involved in this, uh, which are absent from the Kyoto uh, mechanism. And then finally, we find that even people who are skeptical about climate change or skeptical about the human uh, causes of climate change tend to respond positively to concerns about energy security, uh, which obviously this technology uh, would be helpful with. The problem is, of course, if you have this uh, $80 billion a year to spend, how would you spend it? Uh, back in the 19, uh, begin, early 1980s, the US had a program of alternative energy research that was stimulated by the oil price shocks of the 1970s. 
And what happened to that money was that it largely went back into the uh, pork barrels of the states which had powerful members of Congress, or it went into the technology that some DOE bureaucrat, Department of Energy bureaucrat, had, public, uh, had studied in engineering school. Uh, so clearly, that's not the way you want to uh, distribute the money. And so some of the things that we're working on at the moment are alternative ways of distributing this fund so as to avoid those kinds of rent, what economists call rent-seeking traps. One is to offer prizes uh, for producing a technology. That means you only actually pay out when the technology has been developed, so you're not subsidizing uh, a development process, which then provides incentives to draw that process out in time. Uh, you can allow competition between diverse portfolios of technologies. In other words, rather than putting money, some money into wind, some into solar, or into nuclear, or choosing just one of those, you actually invite uh, universities, companies, uh, uh, research centers to form consortia where they will have a mixture of technologies in their portfolio. And the analogy here is with mutual funds uh, or uh, unit trusts, that you're trying to spread the investment and see which performs better. And then once those technologies have been brought along to a certain point, then you can go to the market and allow the market to do what it does well, which is choose between well-understood alternatives. <coughs> Markets are not good at choosing between ill-defined alternatives, which is what we have at the present moment. And then finally, this is embarrassing for those of us who are of a sort of um, I suppose generally little L liberal uh, disposition, uh, which is actually uh, military uh, development of technology uh, has been spectacularly successful in bringing us new technologies. Uh, for example, uh, only 20 years ago, a GPS system was about the size of a suitcase and cost $20,000. Now I'll wager you're all walking around with one in your pocket because uh, you've got one built into your smart mobile phone. The federal highway system in the United States uh, other technologies basically have uh, become uh, very successful. And I think the very fact that the US is currently facing costs of something like $350 a gallon to get gasoline to the front in Afghanistan uh, may well turn out to be a major incentive uh, for the US military to uh, go beyond using petroleum technologies. We also, however, have a problem with getting rid of the old. We assume that when we put new technology in the top of the system that the dirty technology drops out of the bottom, but that actually doesn't happen. We still use as much of everything today as we ever have, except one, except one energy source. Does anybody know what energy source we've given up as a... No, no, we've used plenty of coal. Sperm whale oil, yes, exactly. And it wasn't because we were running out of sperm whales. Uh, it was because kerosene was uh, cheaper and, and easier to, uh, to source. But critically, you could burn it in the same lab. So you had a transitional technology that took you from one fuel sperm whale oil to kerosene. So one of the things we need to think about are, uh, are transitional technologies so that we can get away from this situation at the moment. But what happens is we put in a clean technology, it reduces the price of the dirty technology, and that just moves somewhere else in the world. It's a bit like you go out and go buy a nice new energy efficient refrigerator at Curry's. They come along and deliver it, and then you turn around to your spouse and say, well, what should we do with the old one? Oh, I know, we'll put it in the garage and keep wine in it. You know, and that's what happens on a global scale at the moment, and clearly we need to address that. I'm going to go on to talk uh, a little bit about technology for coping with climate variability. So this is now the second leg of my three-legged uh, trousers, um, the idea of adaptation. For many, many years, we couldn't talk about adaptation. Uh, it was a bit like, as I've already mentioned, I lived in Tennessee for a long time. Talking about adaptation throughout the 1980s and most of the 1990s and into the 2000s, was a bit like talking to Southern Baptists um, about sex education in schools. Um, you know, we don't want to go there because even if we talk about adaptation, it will encourage people to continue to emit carbon uh, dioxide. In other words, it will encourage people to continue with their bad, bad behavior. That has now changed as it's recognized that we are committed to a certain degree of climate change to which we will have to adapt. Um, but even there, we're faced with this problem uh, of scientific uncertainty about what would you adapt to, over what timescale, and so forth. So I'm suggesting shifting focus from trying to predict and provide about adaptation to trying to improve the flexibility and the uh, capability of societies to respond to climatic change. And I think the way you start doing that is getting them to respond better to existing climate variability. The, UK, the, the um, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change talks about avoiding dangerous climate change. But as my colleague at UEA has said, Mike Hulme has said, climate's always been dangerous. It still is dangerous. This is New Orleans. 
climate was dangerous. Although actually it wasn't increasing hurricane events that caused this, uh, it was the technological failure of the dams and, and, and levees. So we are already vulnerable to climate, climatic variability. If we improve our responsiveness to climatic variability, we start to build the kinds of structures that will then over time enable us to adapt much better to climatic change, and we will save lives and property immediately. Emissions reductions are all very well, but emissions reductions will not save lives and property in the next 60 years. And the reason for that is because it takes a long time for changes in uh, greenhouse gas emissions to work through uh, the, the atmospheric system uh, and to bring about changes in the, uh, in the way in which the greenhouse effect works. Uh, I, we're often told that hurricanes are increasing in intensity and frequency. That's actually not true. Uh, there is a slight trend towards increase if you take the last 50 years, but if you go back 100 years, that trend disappears. Uh, the worst hurricane on record was still the Galveston hurricane at the uh, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, but what is happening is that the damage costs from rain and uh, uh, water and wind damage from hurricanes have just absolutely skyrocketed. Why would that be? So if, if hurricanes haven't increased in intensity... It's because we put expensive infrastructure in silly places. This is Miami Beach today. Okay, Miami Beach, a barrier island um, uh, on the, uh, uh, the, the edge of the Caribbean. Uh, this was Miami Beach in 1925. Okay, damage costs going up today, 1925. Seems to me that's a no-brainer, isn't it? You know, it's asset location. So really putting... Whoops. Uh, putting infrastructure in vulnerable places that's not properly adapted to the conditions that it's likely to face is one of the things that we currently suffer from uh, and we could, um, we could avoid. We can protect areas like cities uh, at the present moment through this kind of technology. This is the Thames Barrier, uh, which I think actually is a, uh, a beautiful um, artifact as well as uh, one that has been very important in protecting the, uh, London from storm surges uh, over the past few decades. It's now coming to the uh, end of its useful life, uh, and there is consideration of what to do uh, to supplement it. And interestingly enough, the Thames 2100 programme, uh, which is examining this, is looking at a lot more of uh, uh, these kinds of flexibility ideas uh, and recognising the limits of hard defences. And the you know, you could build these kinds of things for, to protect London. You could do it to protect uh, New York City if you put a barrier across the Verrazano Narrows, something like that. You're not going to be able to do it uh, for Bangladesh. Uh, the Ganges Delta is simply just too diffuse. Uh, and Bangladesh imports stone. They import rubble, actually. Other people's demolished buildings because they have a shortage of stone. They're not going to have the capability uh, to engage in a lot of that hard-style um, hard protection. Um, and this is where we can actually learn uh, from marginal people in marginal societies. Uh, this is, these pictures are actually of uh, the Tonle Sap Lake in Cambodia, where one of my uh, doctoral students recently did his fieldwork. And this is a very unusual ecosystem. The, uh, the river that feeds the Tonle Sap Lake flows from the Mekong into the lake in the monsoon season and from the lake back into the Mekong in the dry season. Um, this also means that the lake level fluctuates tremendously over the course of the year. If you were to build your settlement on the edge of the lake in the monsoon season, you would have an awful long way to go to get close to any water and to be able to fish and so on uh, in the dry season. If you were to build your settlement on the edge of the lake in the dry season, uh, you would have to go out and buy a mask and snorkel uh, in order to continue to inhabit it in the wet season. Furthermore, these are people who are too poor to buy land anyway. And what they have done is they have adapted by building floating villages. And these villages have, as you can see, a church. They have stores uh, and other facilities. Uh, by the way, this is not unique to Tomli Sap. You find similar uh, settlements in Vietnam. There's actually traditionally one in Hong Kong Harbor called Aberdeen. But the interesting thing is the way now architects and engineers are picking up some of these ideas from traditional societies using modern materials, modern methods, uh, and are adapting them for, uh, uh, for, for modern applications. Uh, on the left here, you can see... Th these are both examples from the Netherlands, by the way, which is particularly interesting because it's the Netherlands we think of as being the, the place which is really where they do hard protection against flooding, you know, the whole dike system and so on. 
the, the uh, building on the left there is a, an example of a house. There's a whole village of these houses in the, in the Netherlands already constructed, and they, they move up and down with the fluctuating water level. Uh, here on the bottom right is a, uh, an architect's model uh, of a, uh, an apartment complex, uh, but there are similar designs for office applications and so on and so forth, uh, which would be a, a different way of coping uh, with climate variability. Uh, one of the things that we also need to note is that we have maladapted in the course of the 20th century to the climatic conditions that we encounter. Uh, this is as a result of the standardization uh, of architecture. The house that you see here can be found in North America, Europe, Australia, Africa, pretty much anywhere. Uh, and there's no particular adaptation to the local circumstances. And this, of course, exacerbates something called the urban heat island effect, which means that where you have um, urban settlements, the temperature in those urban settlements is two or three degrees higher than the surrounding uh, countryside. Uh, and the culprit for all that is this. It's air conditioning. Uh, and it was the introduction of air conditioning in the 20th century and its rapid expansion of its use in the post-war years, uh, really since 1950, um, that has been the cause of this maladaptation uh, to climate change. And of course, in turn, that increases the demand for these, which is the cause of the problem in the first place. And I think it's interesting, again, to see where architects and engineers are now beginning to take a new look at old technology. Uh, on the left here, at the top, you can see something which is called the Queenslander House. This is a typical uh, example of housing that was built in the uh, first half of the 20th century in Queensland, in Australia. You can see it's very well adapted to a hot environment. You've got 360 degree air circulation. You've got very wide overhangs of the verandas there, uh, which provide for maximum natural cooling. Unfortunately, what happened when air conditioning was introduced into Australia is a lot of people then filled in the bottom, the ground floor here, to make a more conventional house. Uh, many of them regretted that in the recent floods in Queensland, uh, because not only is this well adapted to, uh, to temperature, uh, to bright cooling, it also provides some measure of protection against uh, flood intrusion. But you can see how the features of the Queenslander house have been taken up in this uh, office building uh, in the bottom left-hand corner here. This is a building on the University of British Columbia uh, Okinawan campus uh, in uh, Canada. And you can see how this idea of taking, having the, uh, the separate roof that is above the roof of the building to provide the air circulation and cooling uh, has been adapted uh, from this more traditional design. Another example here is the Middle Eastern Wind Tower. Uh, you find these uh, all over the Middle East, Morocco to, to Yemen. The idea here is that the wind blowing over the level of the rooftops uh, forces air down into the, uh, the building underneath to provide cooling without using any fans or electrical devices uh, whatsoever. And uh, Norman Foster, in his project in Mazdar in the United Arab Emirates, took that idea, presented it to aeronautical engineers, and got them to design real state-of-the-art uh, wind towers using modern lightweight metal materials uh, which uh, he's installed in Mazdar. This one is actually designed to bring cooler air from above the city level down into a public plaza, uh, but there's a much more sophisticated system he also has for driving air down underground and cooling the air in the naturally cooler rock underneath before uh, bringing it up to the surface. So we can see there's all sorts of intriguing uh, possibilities for technological change uh, here, if we look imaginatively uh, at the technologies that we have discarded during the 20th century uh, in, uh, by the application of the use of the air conditioner. In my final 10 minutes, I'm going to now turn to a third, the third leg of the trousers. And I should say that this is actually much more contentious than, uh, uh, than anything really that I've talked about as yet. And that's the idea of deliberate large-scale manipulation of the planetary environment to counteract anthropogenic climate change. Uh, that's the definition of geoengineering provided by uh, the Royal Society in this report, of which I was one of the co-authors in uh, September 2009. I should emphasize that at the moment what we're talking about here is we're talking about what social scientists call technological imaginaries. Um, what this means is that basically these are concepts at early stages. We do not have any fully developed geoengineering technology. We have bits of kit, 
that could be used in geoengineering, but we don't have any fully developed technology, and certainly not any technology uh, that would be recognisable in terms of the definition I gave earlier as social systems mediated by materials and devices, because although we have bits of kit, nobody's thought about how you would actually govern uh, the uh, application of this technology. And in fact, what we're worrying about at the moment mostly is how do we govern the process of research that might be uh, appropriate in trying to explore whether these technologies are even a good idea or not. Okay, so we're talking about the problem of the very cutting edge of the emergence of a new technology. The other thing is, like many new technologies, and you think, for some of you may uh, be familiar with uh, what happened with nanotechnology, um, is basically what you have is the assemblage of a very heterogeneous range of technological practices under a new umbrella. So just as nanotechnologies brought together things as diverse as microbiology, uh, electronic miniaturization, molecular um, engineering, and so on and so forth, and basically said these are all on the nanoscale, let's call this nanotechnology. Geoengineering brings together a very diverse range of kinds of technologies uh, uh, under the, uh, the umbrella term. And one of the things that we have to uh, ask ourselves is why the uh, why it is that attention is now being turned to these, and that's because uh, of, in many cases, frustration at the slow rate of climate uh, policy development, and the idea that somehow or other we could cut through the Gordian knot uh, of climate policy by geoengineering our way out, uh, because it's imagined that there are not the incumbents with the vested interests in this area that there are, for example, in energy. Uh, where clearly you have oil companies and, and, and car companies and, and road builders and all the rest of it with, uh, with vested interest. I think um, that is a questionable assumption and actually that uh, even if there are not currently incumbents, incumbents would soon emerge uh, if we started to apply these technologies on any large scale. But before I go into that, what am I talking about? Essentially, there's two things you can do to geoengineer the climate and there's two ways you can do both of those things. One of the things you can do is um, you can uh, engage in what I've called here earth systems enhancement. If you don't like it, you'll probably call it tinkering with nature. Okay, but basically this is trying to add something to a, a, a global system that will make it do what it already does more intensively. Uh, and uh, one way of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, for example, it's been suggested that you might put uh, iron in the ocean, in parts of the ocean where the, uh, where, which are iron deficient, to stimulate plankton blooms. The plankton will photosynthesize, draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Fish come along and chomp the plankton. Fish poop sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Hey presto, you've got your carbon out of the atmosphere, right? Actually, the, the Germans and the, um, the Indians did an experiment a couple of years ago. Uh, the first part worked, they got a nice plankton bloom going, but the Plankton got eaten by jellyfish, which had like floaty poop, and the carbon went back up into the atmosphere straight away. Um, a more recent experiment, they're claiming they've actually injected the, the iron filings into an ocean gyre that keeps them more concentrated, and they've had better luck uh, in attracting the right sort of fish. Um, but we'll see. So that's one way you could um, enhance an Earth system to draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Uh, and the other thing you could do is um, you can reflect some of the Earth's sunlight back, sorry, some of the sunlight back away from the Earth, okay? Uh, and a way you could do that through Earth systems enhancement is by putting uh, fine sulfur particles, aerosols, into the stratosphere. Now, why do I call that imitating an existing Earth system? Because volcanoes do this periodically. Uh, in fact, when Mount Punatubo erupted a few years ago, we had, and this is a very rough approximation, uh, a roughly two-degree attenuation of global temperatures worldwide for a couple of years until the sulfur rained out uh, of, the, uh, of the atmosphere. Um, and so you could, in principle, uh, put uh, sulfate aerosols up into the atmosphere. You could spray them from planes. Uh, there's been a proposal, some of you may have read about in the press, to build um, a, a system whereby you would basically take a pipe up, 20-kilometer pipe, uh, attached to a big balloon, and you'd pump the sulfur uh, up into the atmosphere. The other way that you can do either of these two things, take carbon out of the atmosphere or reflect sunlight away, would be what I've called here black box engineering, traditional engineering. You could build machines like this one, uh, Artist's Impression on the left here, uh, which basically will suck carbon out of the ambient air that 
and then you can put it down old oil and gas wells, for example. Um, so it's a bit like the same technology you use for carbon capture and storage that some of you may already be familiar with, except instead of taking the carbon dioxide out of a carbon dioxide rich gas waste stream, you're taking it out of the ambient air. The advantage is you could build these actually where you've got your spent oil and gas wells, so you reduce the transportation uh, of the carbon dioxide, whereas if you're taking it out of the, uh, the waste stream of the power station, you've then got to move it somewhere. Um, so that's a trade-off. And then, of course, the, uh, the way in which you might do black box engineering to reflect sunlight is space mirrors, probably not actually a big one like this, much more likely to be a, a, multitude, a cloud of much smaller um, uh, things that you could get into space. That one has received the least attention of all because uh, it's pretty clear to people at the moment that the, um, that the, the costs of lifting this gear into space uh, is, makes it a very uh, unattractive proposition. The other three are options that are still pretty much uh, on the table and being explored. Now, there's all sorts of problems that people have already raised with respect to the idea of developing these technologies. One is the same moral hazard uh, as I mentioned earlier when people weren't wanting to talk about adaptation. The fear is if you talk about geoengineering, uh, that this is people, that, that the world politicians in particular, but the public will think that we have a get out of jail free card, which means we don't have to do the carbon dioxide emissions reductions. Uh, so that's one concern. Um, Personally, I'm skeptical that that's uh, a major problem because I haven't seen uh, the fact that adaptation is now being discussed quite widely, having a negative impact on people's determination uh, to deal with carbon emissions. Another possibility is ecosystems disruption, and this is uh, particularly uh, the case with the sulfate aerosols uh, and potentially the case with the, uh, the iron fertilization. Some models have suggested, uh, for example, that if you put sulfate aeros aerosols into the upper atmosphere, you might cause disruption to the Asian monsoon. Other models have not had that result. They've had a, a contradictory result to that. But there is still concern uh, that you might actually have uh, some quite widespread disruption uh, that uh, would be unintended consequences of engaging in these technologies. There's concern about technical and economic lock-in. I've already mentioned uh, concerns about lock-in. The technical lock-in is if you put sulfate aerosols up into the atmosphere and you're using those as an umbrella to cool the earth and you're still emitting your carbon dioxide, then you discover you have done something bad, like screw up the Asian monsoon. And so you say, OK, I'm going to stop doing this um, uh, sulfate aerosol injection uh, into the stratosphere. Admittedly, in two years, it will rain out, but then you'll have a very sudden temperature spike. This is called the termination effect, and that worries people. An example of economic lock-in, um, interestingly enough, uh, if you were to build those carbon-sucking machines I showed you an example of, in theory, and you discovered that there was something going wrong that you hadn't thought of, and so far actually nobody's really thought of anything really bad associated with that technology, but if you did, you could in principle flick the switch and turn the machines off. But I put it to you that if you actually had that technology implemented on the scale necessary to make a difference, you would have created massive economic vested interests and industrial interests in keeping that technology going. So that would be an example of a socioeconomic lock-in rather than a technical lock-in. So there are real concerns here. Um, there's concerns about the governance arrangements. Some people have suggested that you might use sulfate aerosols to counteract um, some kind of a, a spike or a peak in temperature rises, uh, giving us time uh, to implement more conventional emissions reductions. Uh, the problem is who would, who would decide that you have a climatic emergency that you want to avoid? Um, you know, would it be a club of the rich countries who have the technology at their disposal? You know, what would be the, the issues involved here? Um, and certainly there are concerns uh, about uh, unilateral application of some of these technologies and what they might imply. Uh, imagine, for example, that India had done some sulfate injection uh, a couple of years ago, just prior to the floods in Pakistan. It doesn't matter whether or not those floods were the result of that aerosol injection disrupting the local climatic conditions. You can imagine that the, the political pressures to, uh, for a conflict there would be extremely high and extremely dangerous. And then finally, there are those who just simply worry that geoengineering will disrupt the existing uh, climate policy architecture. As you've already guessed, that doesn't bother me. In fact, I think that's one of the most intriguing 
uh, aspects of geoengineering because I think the existing policy architecture is in dire need of serious disruption. Uh, so what are we faced with with the, these technologies? We're faced with something that was identified by a British uh, social scientist in the early 1980s, a guy called David Collingridge, sadly now dead, um, and died before his work really became uh, properly recognized, uh, which is the technology control dilemma. And what Colin Gurridge said is really what you want is the earliest stage of the development of a new technology. You want to put in place the arrangements for managing it um, as it's developed and implemented. The problem is that when technologies are really developed and implemented, they often don't look much like what the original inventor thought the technology would be. Uh, so, you know, you, essentially you can't do it. But he didn't want to leave us with a council of despair. And what he argued was that where you have a choice, and admittedly you don't always have this choice, but where you have a choice to choose between a flexible option or a, uh, a less flexible option, that you should always select in favour of flexibility. Think, for example, here about the, uh, the problem of asbestos, the challenge of asbestos. Asbestos was a miracle material. It saved countless lives. It was a fantastic fire control uh, material in big cities. It was a great, really efficient ingredient in brake pads uh, that meant that vehicles would stop quicker and so fewer people would die in traffic accidents and so on. And then we discovered actually that it is, has very serious effects uh, when inhaled uh, on the lungs. And um, uh, it's been tremendously difficult then to gather it back in and to reverse that process. So what he said was to think about uh, things that um, cause premature lock-in, technological monoculture. If anybody tells you about a technology, there is no alternative. Immediately, he said, you should get suspicious. Look for the alternative technologies. Try and keep more than one technology in play, because you may find that you, you need to resort uh, to it or revert back to it. Watch out for very capital-intensive technologies, because then people won't retreat from the commitment they've made to invest in it. Things which have long lead times. And one of the ones that he pointed out characteristics was, and this is interesting, hubristic claims. And what could be more hubristic than saying we can save the planet with a few tons of sulfur in the stratosphere? Um, so there are very good reasons, I think, to uh, take notice of that. Um, I'm just very quickly going to mention um, what is the kind of flexible governance architecture I have been involved in proposing uh, through the Oxford Geoengineering Programme, uh, of which I'm one of the co-directors here at uh, the, the university, uh, where a couple of years ago, uh, in response to an invitation from the House of Commons Science and Technology Committee, uh, we submitted evidence where we suggested that uh, in order to control properly even the research process, we needed a few guiding key principles that would establish uh, the non-negotiable uh, uh, concerns that society would have about the development of a new technology of this sort. And then because the, each of the technologies are so different, we would have specific research protocols nested underneath those, uh, which would be developed at each stage of the development of the technology uh, that would be very specific to that. So the protocol for stratospheric aerosol injection would not be the same as the protocol for carbon capture and storage using machines, uh, and the timeframes and the stage gates at which you would need to review the protocols uh, would be different for each technology. But all of those protocols you would have to refer back to the guiding principles, uh, and these were the five principles uh, that we proposed at that time. Uh, I'm not going to go through them in detail, but basically these were derived principally by social scientists who had looked at the kinds of things that people worry about with the emergence of new technology, uh, such as nanotechnology and so on and so forth. Uh, these were actually picked up by the Science and Technology Committee and endorsed in their report and subsequently endorsed by the government in its formal reply to that report. Uh, we also took these principles to an international scientific meeting in Asilomar, California, uh, which was trying to devise governance arrangements internationally, uh, voluntary governance arrangements for the research community, and they were uh, widely accepted and uh, with some slight modifications uh, uh, there. Um, so we're now trying to move beyond that to elicit uh, or, or to, um, uh, to elicit ideas about uh, what the technology-specific research principles should be uh, and uh, what uh, uh, to enable the, res the research to go forward in a responsible way. And these are the conditions that we have for that. So I'm going to stop there to allow some, make sure we still have about 10 minutes for questions. 
uh, but I'll just leave you with a final thought uh, and this uh, art installation from uh, a man called Thomas Saracino, who's an Argentine artist working in Germany. Um, and a lot of his work actually involves making these very, very lightweight uh, bubbles with slightly warmer air in them. Uh, and uh, then he puts uh, figures in them and vegetation and so on. And the installations are called Cities in the Sky. And I'm not suggesting that literally uh, we're going to be moving from perhaps floating cities, which I do think is uh, not an entirely far-fetched idea, uh, to cities in the sky, but it illustrates the main point, which I think that really when we... We've had a loss of creativity and a loss of the application of imagination to climate policy. We've reduced it to essentially one or two numbers, two times CO2, or two degrees, or 350, 450 parts per million. Uh, and it's really much more than that. It's a, it really is a challenge to the human imagination to cope with. So thank you.